welcome to Beyond Borders podcast, where ideas enlighten. I am your host, Oscar Guardiola Rivera, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce this week's podcast, featuring Hollywood actor David Stratton and Derek Goldman, director of the Laboratory for Global Performance, Culture and Politics at Georgetown University. They will be talking to broadcaster Kisti Lang about their extraordinary collaboration in bringing Remember This, the lessons of Jan Karski to both the stage and the screen. This episode is one of those rarest, most beautiful gems, and it is absolutely topical. Remember This tells the remarkable true story of the reluctant Polish World War II hero Jan Karski who risked his life to carry the first eyewitness reports of the Holocaust to the Western world and to the White House. I will leave Kirsty to set the scene, but look out as Stratton acts out sections of his tour, the force, solo performance of the play, as both he and Derek explain why Karski's life remains so compelling and holds such import for our own troubled times. The play is a towering example of how artworks and performance can both remind and enlighten us about our history, including its darkest periods, which continue to haunt us to this day. So Jan Karski warned Churchill and Roosevelt about the Holocaust when it would still have been possible for the Allies to do something, and they did not. Uh, Karski is the subject of a one-man show called Remember This. The lesson of Jan Karski was produced um, uh, by the Laboratory for Global Performance and Politics at Georgetown University. Um, it sounds like a fantastic program. Um, it stars the Oscar-nominated actor David Strathern, who m many of you will know from films such as Lincoln, Nomadland, or here in the UK from the BBC drama series McMafia about Russian organised crime. Uh, the, the play was uh, co-written, um, uh, directed and produced um, by Derek Goldman, who is with us, and uh, it's been adapted from Jan Karski's own words. Now, uh, just a, a, a brief introduction to the story. Um, so Karski was a Catholic diplomat. Um, he was a, a great linguist, um, and he was recruited by the Polish underground to report on what the Nazis were doing um, in Poland. Um, and because he was a, a great linguist, they knew he would be able to spread the word. He also, this is absolutely key, he had a photographic memory So they, you know, obviously he couldn't walk around taking notes, whereas they knew that if they took him to the places like this, he would remember, and he would be able to report back uh, to the Allies what was happening uh, 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 on the ground. And members of the Polish underground took him into the Warsaw Ghetto and later into a Nazi death camp, dressed up as a, as a guard, um, so that he could see what was happening and report these horrors to the outside world. So uh, David and Derek, first of all, thank you so much Uh, for being here today. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Um, I have seen the film as a play, um, and even as, 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 a, as a, fil the, a filmed version is incredibly uh, powerful um, and very, very resonant with what is happening today, where I think many, many of us in this room are thinking, 
What can we do? What can we, what can we as individuals do to, to, to change things? Um, you know, particularly as we witness another war in Europe, the rise of authoritarian regimes around the world, climate change, etc. Before we start our discussion, we're going to play you a trailer, just a couple of minutes of the film. Ron VT. <laughs> Human beings have infinite capacity to ignore things that are not convenient. Jan Karski. Born Jan Kozielewski. I tell my students, governments have no souls. They can't take any more. All the names, all the addresses. And I swore I would never break, never disgrace my Poland. Messenger of the Polish people to their government in exile. What are you waiting for? Jump! Messenger of the Jewish people to the world. He is dying. He is dying. Tell them over there in London and the United States that you saw it. Don't forget. He is more than the President of the United States. I see a Lord of humanity. Unless the Allies take unprecedented steps, we will be totally exterminated. You have to take responsibility for the human race, because you belong to the superior race. Decur if you attempt to escape, Decur you will be shot. If you create disturbance, you will be shot. Hold the swine onto the train. Consider what I say, some ancient, terrible myth. All I can say is that I saw it, and it is the truth. So let me start with, with Derek. Uh, how, I mean, how did you come to write this play and, and, and Georgetown University to, to produce it? Sure. First of all, it's just I was here for the first time last year and had a beautiful time, and it's wonderful to be back and particularly sharing this piece that resonates, I think, so much. I um, have taught at Georgetown for many years where Karski was a professor for 40 years. He passed away in 2000, so I, by the time I came to Georgetown, he was no longer there. But the legacy of Karski at Georgetown over 40 years of teaching was you know, is very, very much in the, uh, in, the, in the courtyard, as they say. And there's actually a statue of Karski in a very prominent place on campus. Um, in 2014, I was directing the Laboratory for Global Performance and Politics, which I still do, which is an initiative in the School of Foreign Service that's an arts-based initiative. 
and Karski's centennial was being celebrated on campus. And I had done a lot of theater around these themes and spent time in Poland and was just asked to put together something for that centennial. I was aware of the outlines of Karski's story, but like many Georgetown students and colleagues, really only the outlines. And um, we put together what we fully anticipated at that time would be a one-off special event with, I, I reached out to David, who I fortunately had, had known and worked with. Um, David re remembered and knew of Karski. He'll share a little more probably later about, about that connection, but I knew that was, um, I, I felt, that something about what I love about David and his work and what I uh, came to feel about the figure of Karski uh, connected. And that first reading was, a, was with, with David as Karski and with a group of students who were playing the other roles in his life. And so from the beginning, this project felt like it was very, very much, we, um, we were so struck, not so much by it as a as a Holocaust history piece, but by, as you were getting at, Kirsty, its immediacy, its resonance with current events, um, the fact that Karski's life was so much uh, 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 connected to questions about what it means to bear witness to what's happening right now, disinformation and the role of truth and lies. It just was so, and so we were kind of on our way. Then, then the response, so many people in the community who knew Karski responded to David and to that first event, and that kind of set us on our journey. So David, I want to ask you, you get this call from Derek sort of saying, look, you know, can you come and, um, uh, you know, perform this sort of, what was then presumably a rather sort of skeletal one-man show. What was your reaction, and had you heard of Karski before? My reaction was an immediate response of, of yes, um, because uh, I, I had met Karski, uh, so to speak, um, when uh, Claude Landsman's doc extraordinary documentary, Shoah, was released in 1984. And for me, that was a seminal moment, uh, educational moment, about the Holocaust, because uh, for be it as it may, my uh, education, uh, I felt, was lacking in, the, uh, in Holocaust education. So I sat through the whole nine hours, um, and Karski, Karski just emerged from that experience and was just sort of seared into my psyche as, um, as a visceral, emotive experience, first of all, and then as something that, that really sort of inspired me to think about all of that history. And so I said, yes. Uh, and as it turns out, I had had a really dear friend um, from Canada who had emigrated from Poland in 1968, who um, introduced me to Jan Karski thereafter, um, because we talked about Polish history. And so it, uh, it, it just seemed to fit these kind of confluences um, in my life. And uh, I do believe that theater is, um, is, is a place where uh, we can reckon with our histories in not just an academic way, but in a, in a more emotive, a visceral way. And, and uh, that's what I try to do. And I thought, well, this is, a perfect, uh, this is a perfect match. Now, David has very kindly agreed to just uh, to, to, to recite or perform just a couple of short um, extracts um, from the play so you get a better sense. And um, uh, uh, you're now going to do for us just the, the very start, the first couple, two or three minutes. Yeah. 
we see what goes on in the world, don't we? Our world is in peril. Every day it becomes more and more fractured, toxic, seemingly out of our control. We are being, unfortunately, torn apart by immense gulfs of selfishness, distrust, fear, hatred, indifference, denial. Millions of us are being displaced, driven from our homes, from our homelands, denied justice simply because of who we are, sickened, silenced, forgotten. We see this, don't we? How can we not see this? So what can we do? Is there something that, that we can do that we're not already doing? Do we have a duty, a responsibility to do something, anything? And if so, how do we know what to do? Human beings have infinite capacity to ignore things that are not convenient. In my classes on the government and the politics, I tell my students governments have no souls. They have only their interests in mind. Individuals have souls. The common humanity of a people, not the power of governments, is the only real protector of human rights. For 35 years, I have never mentioned even to my students that I took part in the war. I wanted to forget that degradation, that humiliation, that dirt. I was forgotten and I wanted to be forgotten. Derek, that, that line, human beings have an infinite capacity to ignore things that are not convenient. I mean, it's so striking how that resonates now, whether it's climate change, Ukraine, Sudan, Afghanistan, Niger. Uh, I mean, what sort of reactions do you have from your political science students who see this play? Do, do they see it as a lesson that we can apply now and not just a, an interesting slice of history? Yeah, I think they they can't not. I mean, I think as you say, I mean, I you know, was really poignant being at the Signet Library the other day and hearing Secretary Kerry talk really urgently in ways with language that reminded me of some of the passages from Karski about about that capacity about um, uh, and and I think that. We have the privilege, we've, we've developed this curriculum called Bearing Witness, the Legacy of Jan Karski Today. It's very intentionally trying to meet young people where they are with what, whatever their own diverse cultural backgrounds are, whatever their degree of knowledge about this history is. We have in the United States, we, Holocaust education is not part of the curriculum for many students, even at a quote-unquote top school like Georgetown, so they come in with very different degrees of understanding about the history. And I think our way in is this kind of question of um, 
the connections people are able to draw around, around human capacity to ignore, and the connection between that and what the other thread that's tied to that that's so important in Karski, and I think why he chose to teach for 40 years during that silence was his belief in individuals to, to make some difference, which seems kind of paradoxical because, of course, he lived with the sense of his own failure as an individual to get a message through, but he believed in and invested in the idea that for however hopeless and overwhelming a situation is, that there are ways for individuals, that that's the, that where the potential is in individuals and their um, capacity to not to not turn away, but to find a way into it. So, so that's what we've focused on, and we've now shared the work with thousands of students, and uh, most recently in Poland. Um, and it's, uh, I think that's really what's ke what's kept the project going is trying to share it with with as many. How as did that as Polish tour go? Because presumably you did it when the women, or, or the war had started. Lots of, did some Ukrainians come? Uh, to they the did. We did it in four cities in Poland. We were in Warsaw, Krakow, uh, Łódź, Karski's birthplace, and Poznan. We had many uh, young Ukrainians in the audience and got to spend some time talking with them. Um, for them, it was, I mean, they just said, this is our life right now. This is a current events play. There's a scene with the Blitzkrieg, which you saw in the film trailer. They were like, that's, they responded to that as in its immediacy. And I think the thing that struck us the most in those conversations was the, that other than just the nearness and history repeating itself, those themes, they were so struck by the way Karski's story is a story of alternate truths and alternate universes and the power of people to just say, well, we say it didn't happen or we say this isn't true. And they were talking, one student in particular was saying, I felt when he was going mad, and this is kind of in reference to Karski performing Shmuel Ziegelbaum, who's a figure who's really driven kind of mad by the, his inability to get through. I was like, that's the, his body language was like what we're experiencing because nobody is, because the truth isn't, isn't getting through. So David, so, so, so Karski um, uh, uh, you know, has this mission during the Second World War, feels he's failed, then really doesn't talk about it until um, Landsman persuades him during show and, and, and has to really, really twist his arm, doesn't he? And then he eventually speaks. Uh, at, but then after that, it, it was almost, I guess, like the floodgates opened. And, and, and he used his experience, didn't he, to teach. He was a very passionate teacher. And, and once he had come to terms with the fact that he was going to talk about his past, he used it in his teaching. And, I'm, and, I'm, and um, I think you're going to perform another little extract for us. Is that right? That, that Am I yes, this, is, this just relates to his passion of teaching and also to the, to, to the, the, the discipline of teaching. He, he said uh, that uh, the more we teach, the more we may change individuals. So we should teach, but not limiting ourselves just to the horrors that have happened and nothing else, but we should teach to form to make young minds more resilient, more noble, more loving, to feel solidarity for each other. Yes, we must inform the young people about the dark patches of our history so that they may learn not to make the same mistakes, while we also teach 
personal responsibility and dignity. And I, I think that speaks to his, his choice to teach for 35 years at Georgetown University, never mentioning his experience in the war, never perhaps complicating the experience of, of a young mind with those horrors. But his, his passion was translated in a very performative way, not only in, in an academic way, and he was a much sought after professor because of that. They say, you can go get history performed for you. He would often take the part of the, the other and, and have a dialogue between them, himself performing it. And for me, I think that's the kind of the essence of what we can take, one of the essences we can take from his uh, exemplary life is that a dedication to the future um, uh, because of the past, but also maybe in spite of the past. And that, his, uh, that is a gift that um, he chose to give. And it was essentially, I believe, he was to the manner born because he, uh, as a young boy, uh, the last of eight children, he was always witnessing things. And indeed, his mother instilled him with this, uh, with the concepts of, and he, he said by his mother, she, she was very, very Catholic. Devotion, respect. She was creating us in her image. And he learned that as a child, where I think, we learn most of what we carry in our life. That was where the moral compass came from. Exactly. Yeah. And she, it, there's a bit in the play where you know, he, he talks about being a little boy and his mother complaining about watching uh, little Catholic boys throw a dead rat at a Jewish house. Yeah, and he was asked to go, you go, go, go to the sukkah where they pray and you keep a watch like a good Catholic boy. If someone comes, you simply call Mammo Mammo, and I will take care of them. <laughs> so just, um, uh, 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 I'm not going to ask you to do an extract of this because it would be a bit too long, but just talk us through the mission that he is sent on by uh, first the Polish underground and then uh, the Jewish underground at the beginning of the war, what, what he does. Yes, he was, uh, he was going to be sent to London by the, uh, the Polish underground to report on what he'd seen. Um, and uh, he learned uh, just before he left that uh, the, the Jewish people also had an underground and he agreed to take one last meeting with them in which they convinced him to uh, uh, to go to the Warsaw Ghetto and to a, a transit camp and bear witness, uh, which he did, which I think turned his mind and his soul, really, um, in a way that he had no idea. Um, and so he took that evidence uh, to London uh, to report to the Allied Nations. Um, and this is an excerpt about him um, as he was, uh, I, I, I was six months in London, in my own apartment, the evenings of air raid sirens, Luftwaffe overhead. Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden informs me that, that Polish reports of these atrocities have already reached them. He says, the matter will take its proper course. May I report to Prime Minister Churchill? No, I will not permit you to take his time. 
1946, when Churchill speaks to Parliament, he, he said that he had no idea of the scale of the horrible massacres that had occurred, the millions and the millions who had been slaughtered, that it dawned on him gradually after the war was over. I am sent to America secretly. I, I still remember the Statue of Liberty emerging from the New York Harbor. In Washington, I stay at the Polish Embassy. Polish ambassador comes with Justice Felix Frankfurter. He is a, a little man, but he does emanate some brilliance, very alive in his eyes. He calls me young man. Young man, do you know who I am? Yes, you are associate justice of the Supreme Court. Mr. Karski, a young man, I was invited by my very good friend, your ambassador, to come here to see you. I was also advised that I should see you. Apparently, you have some information which I should know. Young man, do you know that I am a Jew? Uh, yes, uh, Mr. Ambassador told me this. Well, tell me about the Jews. We have here many reports. What happens to Jews in your country? I report. The man sits and I report. Jewish leaders, ghetto, camp, 15, 20 minutes pass. He does not interrupt and I stop. I remember he is looking small, smaller. He, he is looking at the floor. Young man, as I have mentioned, I have been informed about your activities. I was told that you came out of hell and that now you are going back to hell. My admiration for people like you. And then, young man, I uh, am a judge of men. Men like me talking to men like you must be totally honest. And I am telling you, I do not believe you. Polish ambassador breaks in. Felix, what are you saying? He was checked 100 times. Felix, he is not lying. Mr. Ambassador, I did not say that he is lying. I said that I do not believe him. These are different things. My mind, my heart are made in such a way that I cannot accept. I know humanity. I know men. No, no, no. This is... A particularly, I think, fascinating point in the play where even faced with overwhelming evidence, this Supreme Court judge does not want to believe what he is being told, um, does not want to see what is in, you know, being placed in front of his eyes. I mean, this is an interesting point that the play explores. It's almost a sort of, I don't know, cognitive dissonance or whatever. That, I mean, that really rings true, I think, with climate change. We all... We have overwhelming evidence. Our politicians have overwhelming evidence of what is happening, and yet they do not act. 
Um, do, do, you, do, do, do you see those parallels directly with your students, yeah. presumably? Absolutely. And I, I think that it, um, I think what's important and useful about that is it kind of implicates all of us. It really becomes, yes, there's, a, of course, so much about that's layered into these conversations that is political and is about identity and is about anti-Semitism and other kinds of energies and currents. But there is some that is just about our core human <laughs> capacity and tendency to not be able to absorb. It becomes a myth to turn away. Um, and I think part of what I, I think has been important to us about this story and sharing with many people, that gives in a strange way as, as you know, that's not exactly a happy thing to talk about, but it does give one a way into thinking about oneself and the soul of the individual and the question that David kind of started with, what can you do? Maybe one thing we can do is like, you know, we may not be perfect at not turning away, but we might notice our tendency to do that differently. And if you're working with young people and impressing in their minds, just sort of if that's something that they're attuned to as, as a human tendency that's alive in them, maybe one can start to, to work on that. Presumably you as an actor, David, you can sense those moments in the audience where they're making that connection. Can you feel it in a room where people are kind of going, yes, I Well, you hope, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, one of the things that I was, uh, scenes that I found particularly shocking in this play is when um, uh, Karski eventually gets an audience with Roosevelt. Um, talk us through what happens then. After his meeting with Frankfurter, he is taken to meet uh, FDR. Um, and uh, he, is, he reports, and FDR receives the information. And uh, President Roosevelt asks him um, an odd kind of, he asks him this question about um, what was the use of horses? Did the uh, Germans take a lot of horses from Poland? Because uh, Poland, with your agricultural uh, economy, you need a lot of horses. And throughout their exchange, as Karski reports, that Roosevelt never once asked the question about the Jewish problem. He thanked him for the evidence and his reporting. He wished him well, sent him off back to his country, which he couldn't return to because he would have been killed. He had been uh, discovered. And, uh, and uh, Karski walked out of that uh, meeting in 1943 with what he said was um, a, a sense of completion of a job, as if he had just the last blow of a hammer or signing your name at the bottom of a, of, of, of a painting. And then he decided not to speak anymore. And I think having that door closed on him, this was something that he carried with him to his death, that he had failed in his attempt to try to get the West to do something about the Holocaust. And <clears throat> It, it, for me, it's an extraordinary moment because here at the foot of the, one of the most powerful men in the world at the time, this 28-year-old young man attempting to sway the 
agenda of, of, of a nation, and he felt that he failed. Um, it, for me, it's a, it's a kind of a moment that maybe all of, we, all of us experience in some way where we have a passion to do something, and we do everything we can in our power, and the door closes in our face. How does that make us feel? Where do we go from there? How do we... How do we proceed with our intention, or do we? Or do we be like Karski and find another avenue of, of expression, which was for him to teach? Um, I thought that moment in, in this, his story was, um, it's, it's quite shocking. Um, and, and a lot of people haven't, don't know about that moment. But yes, indeed, Churchill, Frankfurter, President of the United States, and this 28-year-old man who continually called himself to the end of his days an insignificant little man. Interesting dynamic there, I think. So, Derek, give us the context of what's happening. Because I think I found it particularly shocking. Because I mean, many of us in this room, with you know, for, for, I mean, myself included, you know, FDR is a little bit of a hero. Um, there it is. It's 1943. Millions of Jews could have been saved if, if, if something had, uh, and they could have, you know, bombed the railway lines. There were things they could have done. Um, I, I mean, what, what, was the, what was the context? Was it simply because it was a, a not of strategic interest? I mean, how? Yeah, it's a, it's a much, dis um, you know, it's a, it's a much discussed question. And I think Karski was very careful. He always told this Roosevelt story very precisely, almost kind of forensically. He never editorialized or commented or said Roosevelt should have done this instead. He just said what the he told what the exchange was. I think there's a piece Ambassador Stuart Eisenstadt, who was ambassador to the EU, U.S. ambassador to the EU, has a piece a very in, in our book. There's several pieces, a Madeleine Albright piece, and others that are just kind of talking about the climate at that moment. Um, it may well. I think the the most obvious thing that Eisenstadt talks about is just simply that the climate of anti-Semitism in the United States uh, was still very, very strong. Um, and there was a feeling that for Roosevelt that the, the engagement with the war needed politically to not be seen as a Jewish war. That's kind of Eisenstadt's argument. So. I think that the scene, though, is like the tragedy of the scene between Karski and Roosevelt is the disconnect at a human level. <laughs> like, even if policy-wise, politically, there's much more going on for Roosevelt than meets the eye with Karski, the fact that they, that Karski leaves feeling that he has completely failed to get through um, and that the conversation goes to these horses and that there's no mention of the, you know, um, uh, and, you know, I think smarter political minds than I can kind of look at the sort of all of the things that are part of the cocktail of that moment politically. But the reality is that, um, you know, the, the, that I think the anti-Semitism and the, and the caution, um, and I think that's something around the Frankfurter response, around, a lot, Karski talked to a lot of people. I think the question of the, Karski's 35 years of silence before Landsman gets him to talk and show us, some people think of the Karski story as kind of the mystery of Karski's silence. 
I think what we found doing this piece is it's not such a mystery why Karski was silent. The, as with so many people who have witnessed and survived horrific things, the world's capacity to integrate what he had seen was making people not able to kind of respond to the reality he was presenting them. So he went silent, as did so many others. So that when Elie Wiesel finds him in 1981 for the Holocaust Liberators Conference to get him to talk, so many people are breaking silences because there hadn't been a space to really hear the kind of narratives that Karski had had witnessed. Now, I've mentioned that this is this is a, a play which has evolved over time. You, you performed it at the university and in various places like Poland and so on, made this film. And how do you see this continuing? What is what is the life of this project? <laughs> Well, we have the film, um, which is a great thing because it's a capture. I mean, it's a beautiful film, but it also captures what, what David has been doing live, but of course can't do for everyone and forever. Um, and so we're proud of that. But Can I, we see it in this? I mean, I've seen it, but I got a yes. special link. Can the short answer is that the website that's listed there, right? It's, it's PBS Great Performances in the U.S. currently holds. That's, it's been aired on, on that, public broadcasting. And they hold it, but there's now conversations about the global distribution. So if one can get access to the PBS, but the best way to, to find out where you to see it, which hopefully will be very soon for many more people in, uh, throughout Europe, is through the film's website um, to kind of keep track of that, uh, which is there, remember this card. So the short answer is yes. And then the play, we want to, other productions are starting to happen. The unthinkable is starting to happen, which is that people other than David may play this role. Um, and uh, <laughs> um, not because we don't want him to keep doing it, obviously, but he's only one, one man with one body. Um, so, so that's, you know, it's being done in Uruguay, it's being done in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, we're starting, we're in conversations in London. I mean, so we hope that the play will continue to have a life as well. Now, David, there are so many takeaways from this piece of, extraordinary piece of, 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 of theatre. And, and I think, uh, you know, a, a lot of us in, that, in this room, when we, you know, we hear quotes from Karski like, you know, um, governments don't have souls, only individuals, and, and I ask you, what is your duty as an individual? And we're all sitting here going, you know, <laughs> what do we do? Um, what would Karski have said um, if he'd been sitting there? I think he'd probably say the same thing. Um, uh, that, uh, that there's one thing that he always, uh, always sort of ended his, uh, his, his his talks with, whether it was the, the words themselves, but definitely the feeling was that um, uh, he said that you know we have to be aware that the great crimes start with little things. Uh, you don't like your neighbors, why? You don't like them because they are different? Avoid this. Avoid disliking people. Don't make distinctions. We have to take care of each other. And this is what he, he imparted to his students, as he says, wanted to teach a personal responsibility and a dignity and a feeling of solidarity and compassion and understanding. Uh, he was, at, 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 at the same time, a very austere, very imposing, very intimidating presence to a young student. But 
having heard from all of his, the, the, the gifts that his students have given us when I, that, who remember him, saying that he was as down to earth and as human a person that they'd ever met, who cared about their daily life. So I think he would say, do what you can, but take care of each other and, and be true to yourself. And one thing that was, I think, part, a large part of his spine and his, his, his depth of humanity was his faith. Find faith in something, whether it's some kind of doctrine or whether it's some kind of humanistic uh, uh, purpose. But, uh, and, and follow that. That will carry you through. Yeah, I think it's this moment where he, he, said, he says, avoid disliking people. And, mm -hmm. and it's just, it's so simple and it's so profound. And it made me, it made me think when, uh, as uh, a, a young reporter in former Yugoslavia, just before the beginning of the war in Bosnia and Croatia, you know, meeting people who had lived happily in mixed villages, whether they were, you know, uh, Orthodox, uh, Catholic, mm -hmm. Serbian, Croatian, Muslim, whatever. And suddenly being told by their local politicians that that person who lives next door to you is other than you, is different than you, that you start disliking them. And that is where it begins. And we, you know, and I suppose that is one thing we can do as individuals, that, you know, when our leaders and politicians or our neighbours and our friends tell us to other people that we, that, that we don't, that we don't. Um, anyway, um, questions. Um, so there is microphones going up around the audience. What I might do um, if, is take a couple at a time. What have we got? Any hands going up? Yes, <laughs> the one here at the front. And I'll come to you afterwards. Yeah. Um, thank you. Um, the question, um, did he speak to the media? Because it was very interesting with the last session as well and, and the media. Did he speak to the media about what he had seen? Thank you. Well, in a way, after Roosevelt, a meeting with Roosevelt, he wrote uh, uh, this novel, a book, a novel really. It was a, an accounting. Uh, called Story of the Secret State, which was his um, experiences. It became a book of the month club thing and uh, essentially was dismissed as a, a, a spy novel. But he did make an attempt uh, through um, you know, publishing a book. Um, no, I would just add, I mean, the media was, I think he would have loved to speak to the media, but again, the media, and Eisenstadt talks about this, is actually part of the, the media is not really wanting this story anymore, and in fact, what Kursky wrote with Story of Secret State was meant to be like a memoir that told the story directly, and the publishers, and these were major publishers, were sort of like, oh, this part, not so much this, like there's like a love interest that's added that was sort of had to be amped up, and it was going, to so there was something, you know, this was not front page New York Times, this was like back page, small column New York Times kind of stuff, so he, that was part of his sense of frustration. Uh, question at the back. Hi. Um, despite the accent, I live in, uh, in New York, and I work a lot in the area of popular culture and social impact. And so I'm curious, for example, with the play, um, do you have a social impact campaign around it with a call to action? Thank you for that question. The, the answer is yes, and still developing that with an eye towards how to actually figure out how that can have the most impact, especially now as it's moving 
beyond the United States. So I think it's still iterating. Our focus has been on students and curriculum development and trying you know, to get the film, the play to young people and sort of that kind of curriculum development. Um, but um, I think this is part of the, what we're really working with the filmmakers to sort of make more tangible. I think it's tricky. You know, the, I think a lot of what David said, like for us, a lot of the social action, it's, it's, this piece lends itself less to like, so go do this particular thing that the play tells you to do, and more, I think, to kind of, it's almost like muscle building or spirit building of your own awareness towards a range of topics. So we're really trying to like use Karski's lesson to activate for teachers, for audiences, for young people, uh, a sense of, not, I mean, people are shocked that they don't know this history. First of all, so many people are like, why didn't I know this story? Including in Washington, where he lived for decades. Um, so some of it is just sort of like trying to activate people to be aware. But we would welcome, I mean, this is still a young project for us. Yes, it's been around the US as a theater piece. But if there's ideas about how to get it out there, we're very passionate about it. The other question, well, I've got, we've still got a, a, a few minutes left, so I'm going to ask another question. And it really is about, I mean, I'm fascinated by this program that you have at Georgetown because I think I said at the beginning, you know, I, you know, somebody who, uh, who worked in, you know, news and then moved into to the arts. I've always been sort of struck by, by, how, you know, how we, one can use the arts really to to yeah. to, to change things. Um, I mean, just tell us a little bit more about how how this program came about and uh, yeah, what the idea you. was. Yeah, again, it's the Lab for Global Performance and Politics. Um, it's a, the mission is to humanize global politics through the art of performance. Um, we, uh, you know, one of the things I noticed, I came to Georgetown 20 years ago just as a theater maker with an interest in this kind of work and theater's particular power to bear witness around the world. And with a little bit of a sense that in America we tend to be pretty isolationist about our culture, and I was interested that there's a lot of going on globally <laughs> that that we weren't paying attention to. So those were the things. And then what happened at Georgetown is there were tons of students with this kind of dual passion, broadly speaking, for the arts and politics. And I think they had historically been been told, "We got to decide, like you know, which way are you going to go?" And that felt to a group of us like potentially false, actually. And so we started developing courses and programs that intentionally brought together artists who are learning how to make work that is about critical issues, but having them actually think about and understand the world better that they're putting, that, putting it into and not just live in the kind of culture lane. And then for people who are looking at international relations, at, at cultural diplomacy, to sort of understand, to think of themselves as creative beings and imaginative beings. And so that's really been the spark of it. Um, and we, we have fellows all over the world, a global fellows program funded by the Mellon Foundation, who are these incredible, inspiring change makers working at these intersections of, of performance and social change, often in very isolated environments. They're in Palestine, they're in Burkina Faso, they're, but they're connected to each other now, and they're sort of being, inspiring each other through this program. Um, 
And the, only, the other thing I'd say that we've tried to do is develop a methodology that we actually spoke about a little bit at the festival last year for people who are here called In Your Shoes, which is really a way of using performance as a tool for anybody to kind of listen deeply across difference to other people, to have hard conversations. So basically there's group work, but basically we bring people together who are having a hard time communicating well with each other and we, get, we give them a prompt and they curate, transcribe, and perform back each other's perspectives. And, and, and it, it's what, in some ways, it's what theater has done for thousands of years, but it's really powerful and effective, we find. It's empathy, isn't it? Which exactly. Is what, you know. And getting people to sort of understand themselves better, hear how someone else is seeing them, and hopefully try on for size perspectives that they might otherwise just, you know, stave mm -hmm. off. Well, um, uh, David and Derek, thank you so much for a fascinating talk, and uh, uh, you know, thank you also for those performances from David. Take care. That's absolutely wonderful. Um, thanks for joining us. <laughs>